most of you are aware that Maribel Toro lost her mother this week and had a service last night. Continue praying for, for Maribel and for Ben, for Jessica and Natalie and the extended family. There was quite a large, quite a large family. And um, it was kind of unexpected. So they need our prayer that God would strengthen them, encourage them, and provide all the grace that they need during this time. Of course, Jessica is getting married this weekend. And it's hard to mourn the loss of a loved one and rejoice at the same time in a wedding. So, please be praying for, for them. I don't often mention my wife, Chris, but you guys know that she's going through chemo. She's done extremely well, and we praise God for how well she's done and she starts at school Thursday. She has another treatment uh, on Wednesday. And um, it usually hits two or three days afterwards. And it can, can really um, be exhausting and can be painful um, for her. And so I appreciate you praying for her as she makes this transition. She's, she's done well during the summer because she's been able to rest and sleep. Um, but it's very fatiguing for her. Um, one of the side effects. So pray for Chris, please, that she would forgive to go through this time period, make that transition into teaching, and um, that, again, that God would use the chemicals to um, kill all the cancer in her life. Let's go up to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, but we rejoice that you're sovereign. We rejoice in all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And Father, we think of Maribel, Ben, Natalie, Jessica, for all the extended family, the five or six siblings, of Maribel's mom, grandchildren. Father, encourage them this week. Lift them up even today. Give them strength in their innermost being. No, Father, during this time of grief, may they be drawn to you. Those who do not know you, Father, may they seek you out and find rest and peace in you. Father, we pray for Chris and lift her up. Lord, thank you for how you blessed her and how you encouraged her. We ask God that she goes in Wednesday for this next treatment of chemo. And if she receives the shot on the next day, Father, that you would be working for in her body, Lord, that she would be strengthened according to a way that only you can do. Lord, give her grace as she makes that transition back into teaching on Thursday. Father, we do ask, Lord, that you would just use those chemicals to kill any trace of cancer. We thank you, Father, for all that we have in you. We thank you, God, that we can rest and have your peace and your joy in the midst of life. Now, Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for the book of Nehemiah. And, Father, for the challenge that it is to us. We thank you, Father, for these two chapters that we'll be looking at today. We ask, Father, that you would use your word, Lord, to impact our hearts. Now, Father, may I just remove myself and allow you, Lord, to speak through me. Oh, Father, I know for me it's been challenging as I have studied this passage. I've been convicted in so many ways, Father. Lord, use your word 
today to encourage us to trust you, encourage us to be obedient to you. Our Father, may we find rest in you, knowing that you provide all the grace that we need. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, what a journey we have had. The wall is up. Nehemiah had moved some seven or eight hundred miles back to Jerusalem with a co-intention of rebuilding the walls. The temple had been rebuilt. Of course, his whole goal was that Jerusalem, the holy city, would again be thriving in worship for the nation. The wall was rebuilt within 52 days, and this, in spite of external and internal and personal attacks. But Nehemiah learned quickly that the rebuilding of the wall was the easy part. The building up of God's people was the hard part. In Nehemiah 7, 4, we read that the city was wide and large, for the people within it were few, and no households had been rebuilt. The city was still in ruins. The people had moved out to the suburbs, the countryside. It was hard, dangerous to live in the city and make a living. The new wall being built was not of much value if people weren't living in the city. When Nehemiah took a census, we saw this in chapter 7, where he found out who was who and where did they live. And then he began, at that point, an inquiry into the genealogy of the returnees. He then would figure out what to do. All this occurred around New Year's time. The first month of the year for the, for the Jewish people was very important. As God's word was read to them, there was renewal and revival broke out. There was confession of sin. People rededicated their lives to the Lord by renewing the covenant of God. Again, Nehemiah's purpose in going back to Jerusalem was to rebuild that wall, to make the city a place worship of Jehovah. But Nehemiah knew that if the city was empty, it couldn't be strong. If the city was empty, worship could not thrive. It needed very much to be a strong community living there. So very important. So that's why he did the genealogy, uh, looking at who they were. I brought along with me today a book called Fred Goals, Book 2. In here, just list after list of names of people, marriages, children. Sometimes there's some very interesting stories within it. Most of these names mean absolutely nothing to me. But this book, The Fred Goals, the genealogy is the, is the um, story of my, my father's mother's family. It goes back to this young man who left England, came to Virginia in 1732. His name is John. John's great-grandfather 
had lived in France for a while, married a French lady, moved back. Then eventually, John himself moved to Virginia. John had five children, and all five served in the Revolutionary War. And later, they all migrated to North Carolina. Later on, they're not sure when, 1835 to 1837, John's great-great-grandson, William, moved to Wilcox County in Alabama. That's where I was born, in Wilcox County. I grew up in Morango County, adjacent to that. This book is a listing of people. It means nothing to you. The names mean nothing to you in one sense. And for me, I don't know them. But for me, there's history. There's that lineage of who I am. And today, as we look at today's passage, it's a record of the people of Jerusalem and the area. If we look closely in chapters 11 and 12, we just see a primary listing of names. That's why we had to jump around so much. It's not that the names aren't important. We won't be reading through this list this morning, but most of 11 and 12, except for those passages that were read, are listing of names of Jewish people. We see first a list of the families of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, then the priests, the Levites, the temple workers, the gatekeepers who repopulated Jerusalem. And after that, we see a record of the families of Benjamin and Judah who remained in the areas outside of the city. Chapter 12 gives us a list of the names of the priests and the Levites under the rubble. Then after that is a list of the high priest followed by the priest and Levites after the rubble. Derek Kidner in his commentary writes is not a bureaucratic pedantry that has preserved these names. The point is that these people and their chronicler are conscious of their roots and of their structure is God's company. There is no rabble of refugees settling down anywhere. They have the dignity of order and of a known relationships above all that they are calling to be the kingdom of priests and holy nation. As we examine this passage today, we see these people had hearts who were willing to do what God called them to do. And each functioned in a certain way in their own capacity. Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, let's read again. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. The leaders were already in Jerusalem. They had already seen the importance of being in the city. Nehemiah used the system of casting lots to decide who would move in. A tithe would be used. One out of ten men and families would be moving into the city. 
when we think of a tithe, we generally think of money, of giving, a tenth of what God has given us. But this was an offering of people. In the previous chapter, the people had chosen to give a tithe of their produce and wood in order to serve God. Now, they're tithing people. We don't need casting lots today because we have the Holy Spirit who lives within us. But back then, it was used often in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16, lots were cast. You remember, decide which of the goats would be the sacrifice and which goat would be the scapegoat, the goat, the goat that was sent out symbolically carrying the sin of the people, the nation of Israel. In Numbers 24, lots were cast to decide how the new, the new land, the promised land, was divided up among the twelve tribes. In Acts 1.26, lots were used to replace Judas. Of course, Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Well, these people offered themselves to the Lord. We, too, must offer ourselves to God. And sometimes when we offer ourselves to God, it requires sacrifice. These families definitely sacrificed moving to the city. How do you get people to move from their farms, from homes that they had built, to move into a city of ruins? Remember, they weren't moving into the Gold Coast of Chicago. They weren't moving into Lincoln Park. They were moving into a city that was ruined. How do you leave your home in a country that's nice? You've been yours for a long time, maybe. Maybe they said, you want me to leave my farm and my home and my neighbors to move into this dangerous city? Well, this call by God was by the casting of loss. It wasn't spectacular. There's not a miraculous sign for these people. God can use many things. He calls us, though, typically in ways that aren't dramatic. And usually, God uses everyday methods. He might call you through being nominated for a position. He might call you because you have a dissatisfaction with what's going on within things in the church. Most of the time, though, God just uses ordinary methods, not spectacular things. This call was a, was a sacrificial one. Again, can you imagine leaving your home, leaving your business, leaving your farm? But humanly speaking, I'm being sarcastic here. What are the advantages of leaving the city if you think human-wise? You lose your income. You lose your home. You lose your neighbors. You live in a place that's in ruins. Again, Nehemiah 7 and 4 says, No houses have been rebuilt. That's thinking humanly, though. That sacrifice was well worth it. We'll see down the line. The amazing thing is, these people responded positively. And verse 2 seems to say that people in, volunteered who weren't even indicated um, by the lottery. Verse 2 says, And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. 
pretty clear that some volunteered. No one had to sell them on the idea. No one had to use guilt. It was like, I'll go. I'll go. God calls everyday people. Every day. He rarely uses spectacular or dramatic ways. It almost always involves sacrifice of some kind. In the book named In the Land of Blue Burkas, Kate McCord writes under a protective pseudonym. She shares how she sold everything. She was high up in a career, power, money. She gave it all up. She sold everything. She moved to Afghanistan with a desire to help Afghan women. She lived there for five years. She had no training. She had to learn the local language on her own. She had to learn what the Islamic rules were. Rules like you don't look men in the eye or you never touch another man. The doctor, uh, women can't use a man uh, or doctor down the line, but she goes into all these details. But one day, she was alone in a rickshaw with two men. She could tell that two men were eyeing her. One had a gray beard, the other one a black beard. The guy with the black beard, she could tell the way he was dressed, that he was a mullah, and he had power. She immediately sensed that they were wanting to say something to her. The gray-bearded man said, are you a Muslim? She answered the question softly and without arrogance, without an apology. I am a follower of the Honorable Jesus, Messiah. The black-bearded man scowled, stiffened. She then knew that she was not out of danger. He scowled as if one was scowling at a hated child or maybe a loose dog. He leaned even closer in to her, looked at her averted eyes, and he said to her, you should become a Muslim. It will be better for you in this life than the next. She responded by looking directly in his eyes just for her response. She smiled, nodded his head, nodded her head rather, and said again, thank you. But he wasn't satisfied. He leaned in even closer. And he growled, You should become a Muslim now. This wasn't advice. This was a command. The third time that he had commanded her to become a Muslim. See, there are rules. In Afghanistan, it's Muslim. You, therefore, as a visitor, coming among them, should become Muslim. Her response, however, was, I am a follower of the Honorable Jesus Messiah. He is my Savior and my Lord, and I believe I have chosen the right path. Thank you for your counsel. She then signaled to the driver to stop. She was several, several blocks from her destination, but she had a strong sensing that to be safer to walk. And even as she got out, a 
the little vehicle. People stared at it. We give ourselves to God. We must be willing to sacrifice his capeness. But secondly, we must be willing to serve without a claim, without being recognized sometimes. We see names of individuals in these listings, but most of the people aren't named. If you would look at the lay families in Jerusalem from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, in chapter 11, verses 4 through 9, verse 6, as it gives a list of people from Judah, it says, And all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468,000 men. This, of course, lists the women, the children. And with Benjamin, chapter 8, says at the end of verse 8, And his brothers, men of valor, 928. No names. And after that, the priest in Jerusalem, verse 12 says, And the brothers who did the work, 822. Verse 13, heads of families, houses, 242. Verse uh, 14, 128. You keep on going down the line. You see, there are very few names. We see the numbers, which don't even include the children, women. Sometimes in the church, we need to serve without being recognized. I remember years ago when Pastor Wayne was around and I served as associate pastor for 20-something years, I think it was. People would come to me and say, Ralph, when are you going to get your own church? And I said, I have no plans. And they just were always like, you need to do that. You see, God placed me here for some 20 years. And I served alongside Pastor Wayne. And I did it very willingly and very gladly. Because that is where God had me at that time. On Sunday morning, you may see four or five, six people here in the worship team. You'll see a host. You'll see whoever preaches. But you know, there are so many other people who serve to make this happen. Santia does the bulletins. Jeanette folds the bulletins. Someone comes along during the week and cleans this place up. Individuals oversee their AV and the computers upstairs. Floor directors and greeters and ushers are active on Sundays. When we have communion, someone has to put that together and serve it. Kano, if you guys are never here, but 8 or 8.15, Kano is here faithfully every Sunday, opening up the doors, seeing what needs to be done. They go on and on, the elders, their part, the deacons, go on and on, those who are praying. You see, faithfulness is not about fame. Remember, it's faithfulness and not fame is the issue. Again, faithfulness, not fame, is the issue. It all goes to what matters, and that's motivation. If we are to serve for recognition, then you're serving for the wrong reason. We need to remember that wherever we are, wherever God has placed us, wherever he's placed us within the ministry here, that God knows what we're doing. We've seen this, these listings, heads of families, and priests, and Levites, 
and gatekeepers, temple servants, inside and outside. There's musicians listed. We see leadership gifts. We see administrative gifts. We see people serving. And of course, we see a praise and worship team. In each area, or each rather served in an, in an area that God had blessed him with gifts. And as they all served together, they served in an effective way for the city, for the nation of Israel. Each had a different role, but each role was vital to the entire operation. Today, as we think about the church, each of us need to be involved so that we make sure that good news does what it needs to do effectively. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 talks about spiritual gifts. And, and if, we, if we were to commit ourselves to the Lord first, as I said, there must be that sacrifice. There must be that willingness to serve without being recognized all the time. And thirdly, under that, we must use our spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 says, Now these are the varieties of gifts same spirit. There are varieties of service for the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everything. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each of us is given the Spirit's gifting for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12 18 says that God arranged the members of the body just as he chose. See, God gave each of us gifts to work together to accomplish his purpose. So the gifts that we have come from the Lord. If we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have a gift, and I'll mention that later on. Well, this week, college football started up. The stadium, maybe 100,000 people may be watching, 22 people play a football game, and maybe on each side there are 60 to 80 players on the side. God doesn't call us to be on the sidelines. When he saves us, he gives us gifts to build up the body of Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. When we sit on the sidelines, don't use our spiritual gifts that God has given us. It cripples the church. Everyone, everyone has a place. Everyone has work to do. God saved you. He placed you in this place, in this body of believers for a reason. And if you're not involved in ministry, the church is hurting. The church is hurting. Because each of us are giving gifts common good. Here, a few reminders when we think about spiritual gifts. One, every believer has at least one gift. God has decided to give it to you. Secondly, each gift is used to edify the body of Christ and to glorify God. First Peter 4.11 Three, a good way to recognize your spiritual gifts is to see what bothers you. If you think that our evangelism is kind of missing the boat, 
then maybe you have the gift of evangelism. Or if you look around and you see things that need to be done, need to be organized, then you probably have the gift of administration. I don't see Diane De Leon, but she has that gift of looking in my office and saying, well, we need to rearrange your office. We need to get things in order. Uh, we need to do this. We need to do that. Gift of administration. There are assessments that we can take. You know, I think a key way, key step is a confirmation by others that you may be gifted in a certain way. I can assure you that over the years, that some have come thinking they had a great voice and wanted to be on the worship team. I confess that I never did think that because I was told early on that I didn't. But confirmation is so very important for our spiritual gifts are. Well, first, we must offer ourselves to God. This may well include sacrifice, serving without recognition at times, it definitely includes using our spiritual gifts that God has given us. Second, we must offer praise and worship to God. If you look back over the book of Nehemiah, you see that, that as I mentioned earlier, Nehemiah's whole reason for coming back was to build the wall so that the, the, the temple would be used for worship. To see the city and the nation worshiping Jehovah, Yahweh. Back in chapter 3, they repaired what gate first? The sheep gate. The sheep gate was used, of course, to bring in sheep for sacrifice. Once the wall was completed, the singers and Levites were appointed first. Chapter 7, verse 1. And then in chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, when they signed the covenant, one of their major obligations was giving to God's work, their crops, their money, their wood, their herds, their flocks. And then as we look at chapter 11 and 12, the reporting of the large numbers I mentioned to you earlier, large numbers participating in the ministry at the temple, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, the singers, the troops, great choirs that we see later show the importance of worship. Everything was centered on worship of God. These people that dedicated themselves to the Lord earlier, you see in chapters 11 and 12 that they were ready to dedicate their work, the wall, to God. Singing in this chapter, this passage, is mentioned eight times. Thanksgiving six times, rejoicing seven times, musical instruments three times, the people were prepared to worship God. They were prepared to dedicate the wall. Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 31, 38, and 40, we read about these choirs. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them 
with half of the people on the wall above the tower of ovens to the broad wall. And in verse 40, So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me. Verse 43, Now on that day, that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sounds of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. They rejoiced because God had given them joy. And as they gave praise and worship to God, it could be heard far away. You know, the important thing about these two choirs on the wall is not the dramatic impact it must have had. It must have been, can you imagine these two choirs coming together, singing back and forth? Dramatic, powerful, I'm sure. But I think the important thing about this celebration was not the march around the wall. It was the expression of joy and praise that came from the choir and from the people of Israel. It wasn't just a professional group, because it says that the children and the women joined in. They were rejoicing because God gave them joy. The sound of their praise and worship could be heard far away. It's easy, isn't it? To become spectators, to sit on the sidelines, not be involved. But when we observe from the sidelines, we miss out on the blessings. Hebrews 13, 15 instructs us. It says, Let us offer through Jesus Christ a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to His name. We need to remind ourselves that worship it should be a priority in our lives. It should be a lifestyle. We don't worship God just on Sundays. But every day of the week, it's a lifestyle. But first, these people offered themselves to God. And secondly, they offered their praise and worship to God. And thirdly, they offered their gifts. We see a strong commitment in chapter 12, 44 through 46, to giving. It says, On that day, Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priest and for the Levites, according to the fills of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. The people had covenanted early to support the temple ministry. They kept their promises. We see here Levites being appointed to take care of the produce, the storing of things, the tithes and offerings represented the support of the people. The people brought the tithes and offerings, not because they were commanded, but out of joy because they loved what the people were doing. Second Corinthians chapter eight, one through five, is a powerful passage when we look at giving. The Macedonians, if you remember, were very poor. They gave out of joy. Paul writes in chapter 8, 
of Second Corinthians, they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in a gift for believers in Jerusalem. Let me read that one more time. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing. I think we see in the Macedonians an example to follow. I know when I read this, I'm convicted. I'm convicted. It's easy to give out of what we got. It's hard to give when it hurts. This verse is key. So very much. It says, They even did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord, to us, just as God wanted them to do. You see, first, they had given themselves to God. And we were trusting that God is our provider, then we in turn are able to give. We must first give ourselves to God. Our gifts can't be a substitute for ourselves. We see this expressed in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. It reads, Has the Lord this greater delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices is in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of lambs. Well, after giving ourselves to the Lord, giving praise to the Lord. We then give our gifts. Nehemiah 12, 47 reads, All Israel, it, it, it doesn't say some of Israel or a few of Israel. It says, All Israel in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, gave daily portions of the singers, of the gatekeepers. They set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. As I read this again, it hits home. Do I set aside my offering for the Lord's work each week? And when I go on vacation, when I go to a retreat, do I hold on to that and bring it? Do I give in proportion to the Lord's blessing upon me? Or do I neglect God's house? Well, last week, we saw how the people of Israel committed themselves to the covenant of God. This week, we saw them dedicate the wall to the Lord. God wants us to be totally committed to Him. We see today that this involves three areas. Again, first, we must offer ourselves to God. And as we offer ourselves to God, that almost always includes sacrifice. It almost always includes serving in such a way without a claim or not being recognized. And third, we must be willing to use our spiritual gifts. First, then, we must offer ourselves to God in service for God's work. Second thing we must do is offer praise and worship to God. Yes, that includes worship on Sunday mornings. It includes a lifestyle of living for the Lord. And third, we must offer our gifts 
to God. Financial support for God's work. William Carey, for whom Pastor Carey is named after, was a pioneer missionary. He was a cobbler before he left for the mission field. And he would keep a map of India before him at the shop where he worked, stopping often to study. He longed to preach the gospel in India. He did a lot of preaching, though, on the side as he waited to go to India, with the result being that his trade dwindled down. And one day, a friend of his admonished, admonished him for neglecting his business. Kerry's response was, neglecting my business? My business is to extend the kingdom of God. I only cobble shoes to pay expenses. You see, he was committed to God, to serving him. He offered himself to God. This should be our mindset. Wherever we are, whatever we do, we live all around here. Around us, the crowds of people we see, walking down the streets, living in homes, going to restaurants. Most do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're lost. They're without hope. They think, they think that their culture of Lunching in these restaurants or going out to parties and doing various things. They think that's fulfillment. I have no question that they don't know Christ, that they're empty. Around us, there are families who are hurting. Maybe single moms, children. Maybe their families, they're doing very well financially, but they need the Lord. Are you and am I thinking of ways to show the love of Jesus Christ? God's placed us here. First, it's not by accident that you are in the body of Christ for years. It's not by accident that we, right here in Logan Square, surrounding Humboldt Park, Wicker Park, God has placed us strategically right here to serve Him, to reach out. Are you thinking of ways to reach out? Well, we have a task before us. We're called to a great mission. God, again, has placed you here for a reason. There's work for all of us to do. He's gifted each of us to accomplish his task. We need to be a community coming together to worship God, to reach out, to share the love of God, to share the hope in Christ. The question is, are you and am I going to do what God has called us to do? It's easy. It's easy to come to church, to be a spectator, not participate. Because we look at these passages today, what 
chapters 11 and 12, we see so much that we, as a congregation, the body of Christ here, just as the nation of Israel was called together to worship God, everyday people, everyday people being called to serve God, to reach out, to encourage each other within. But he can't just stop at encouraging each other. He wants to be reaching out. Because there are people who need to be in Christ and here. I hope you're challenged as much as I was. Let's pray. Our gracious Father,